1: stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
0: do you remember your sex education was it helpful to you was it filled with scientific information rather than real practical advice i'm diggory Waite and this is the real sex education each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum.
2: Hello, Diggs.
0: In this episode, we speak to fellow sex therapist Kate Moyle about our sexual well-being.
2: Sex can have an impact on everything else in our lives. When sex isn't working, can be massive.
0: Discussing it with our partners.
2: I think there's a certain irony in the fact that often the hardest person to talk to about sex is the person that we're having it with.
0: And how we shouldn't worry when sex changes.
2: Why wouldn't it? Everything else changes. We change. You change. Nothing else stays the same. But we expect sex to
0: Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and as ever I'm joined by accredited sex and relationship therapist Kate Campbell. Hello mum.
3: Hello Diggs.
0: Each episode mum and I interview a different guest on a topic related to sex and relationships and we talk to a whole host of fellow sex therapists but today we're going to be taking a closer look at people's sexual well-being and when it's at risk why they go to sex therapy in the first place. To do that we'll be speaking to Kate Moyle. Kate is a psychosexual and relationship therapist, psychosexologist, and fellow podcaster. She hosts the Sexual Wellness Podcast, and we'll be talking to her about that show, what sexual wellness looks like, and how we can take care of our sexual well-being ourselves. But mum, we wanted to address something before going on, because Mm -hmm. we're about to have a long conversation about sexual wellness and promoting sex mm. and all that sort of thing. But for some people, that's not their thing, isn't it?
3: No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's an awful lot around in the media and just, just generally out there about how good for you sex is, which it absolutely is. I mean, we're going to talk about that. It's incredibly good for you, good for relationships, good for you. It's great. But you have to balance what is good for you, in always. So if you feel that you're really not interested in sex for you, either at this moment or ever, then being told all the time that it's really, really good for you and you ought to be doing it isn't going to be helpful. So you balance what works for you. So if those sorts of discourses around positive sex are oppressive or unhelpful, then just don't be influenced by them. It's okay not to want to have sex as well. Mm. It's absolutely fine not to want to as much as it is to want to. And if you do want to, then you have lots of encouragement from the fact that it is quite good for you. So either way, don't let any... Any ideas become oppressive just Mm. think about how they're affecting you.
0: Fantastic well with that out of the way on today's interview we're very glad to be joined by the host of the Sexual Wellness Sessions podcast Kate Moyle. How are you doing today Kate?
2: I am good thank you very excited to be here.
0: Oh we're so so glad to have you on. Um, it's, it's, It's lucky just before we start it's lucky that mum well, Kate, you're my mum because it will make this a lot easier. Because we've got two Kates on the podcast, it could yeah. be a bit confusing if I ask questions. Thing stuff, but... But one
3: and thing two, Kate <laughs> yeah, one and
0: Kate yeah. two. <laughs> We'd have to do something like that, or I'd have to call you by your last names, which would be quite you know Victorian boarding school. But luckily, <laughs> I think we'll all we can all agree we'll call mum mum and uh, Kate will call you Kate, which is great. Excellent. <laughs> so, speaking of podcasts and podcasts, let get the sexual wellness sessions. Tell us about that podcast. What can people find out if they listen to it?
2: So what I was trying to achieve was taking lots of the conversations that I was having inside the therapy room to outside the therapy room, because what I was finding was that the same themes and discussions were coming up over and over again. So really, every conversation is a targeted topic, I suppose.
0: Mm. And sexual wellness. Hmm. I mean, this, this might be quite a broad question, but what do you mean by that? And how can one achieve a good sexual well-being in themselves?
2: I think, for me, it is how we integrate our sexual well-being into the rest of our lives. Because sex can have an impact on everything else in our lives. So our mental health, our physical health, our relationships, our careers. This knock-on effect from when sex isn't working can be massive. And so for me it's about bringing it into line with other aspects of our well-being and it might be not necessarily just about the act of having sex but how we think and feel about sex as well.
0: And what are some of the ways that one can go about that and like sort of cultivate a good sexual well-being and feeling in themselves?
2: Education for me is um Number one, you guys would be pleased, pleased to know, given the, <laughs> the clues in the yeah. title. And what I mean by that is it doesn't have to be formal education. It's gaining knowledge, whether it's from podcasts, TED Talks, articles, books, conversations, online courses. However you gain it, it's about kind of information is power, knowledge is power. And then I suppose the other part of it is a large pillar of it is communication. And the other bit, I think, is confidence. And it's really a combination of all of those things because we might be to someone who decides they don't actually want to have sex, but we feel comfortable with it and happy with it and happy in ourselves and settled. And that might be an indicator of sexual wellness. And we might be someone that isn't physically having sex, but that's not a requirement, I think, to have good sexual wellness or good sexual wellbeing.
0: What are some of the typical threats then to someone's sexual wellbeing?
2: mm Probably the opposite of what I just said to some degree. So a lack of education or misinformation, Mm. negative sexual messaging and narratives. I think that that is a huge thing. And there are lots of blind spots when it comes to sex, and I think that they can cause a huge amount of damage. For example, a sex education model, which we see a lot of evidence for the fact it doesn't work, is abstinence, because it basically is, don't do this, and we're never going to talk about it, we're never going to explain it, and just don't even do it, think about it, anything. And what we then see is actually that lots of people, as a result of having no information, try and source information, and that information might not necessarily be from accurate or helpful sources. And again, a breakdown or a lack of communication or a lack of understanding, those things can be really entwined. And really, for me, I think it is that misunderstanding, but that can be reinforced by culture and society and the messages that we receive, the advertising we might see, how we see sex represented. And what I find when I'm talking to people a lot is there might be a negative sexual perspective or a negative sexual view, and then that gets reinforced by almost everything around them. So it confirms the positioning of sex as something bad or negative or stressful. So that, for me, I think is probably the biggest contributor.
3: So what's an example of that?
2: So someone might feel that sex is shameful. Mm. And this might be a really obvious example. They grew up in a quite strong religious background. They were told sex is shameful and that there is only one right way to have sex and that is within the context of a marriage. So they then have sex outside of that and they pick up a sexually transmitted infection or they talk to someone about it and that person says oh well sex is bad or they see a film and sex is portrayed as something which only a certain type of people do. And so I think that it, it can be quite subtle sometimes rather than necessarily being really obvious as well.
3: That is such a good example. There's one, one of the other things that I see a lot, I don't know about you, but is people who say we've saved sex for marriage and now we're having difficulties because what they've been doing before marriage, they don't count as sex, but it was sex and they were really enjoying it. It just wasn't penetrative sex. And actually penetrative sex isn't really much fun on its own and then they don't put the what they might call not sex foreplay with the intercourse and are not really enjoying it because suddenly what they were doing before which was fun isn't allowed and what they're now allowing
2: isn't fun without the other stuff Mm. and that seems to be really common. What I also see is households where and I think this is really common where sex was just never discussed it was just Mm. a silence around the subject it was just not okay and if it ever came up or it was on the tv or something had happened which made it obvious it was completely shut down and so no one might have directly said sex is shameful but the inference is sex is something that should not be discussed should not be seen should not be displayed in any way Mm. should not be done and that becomes something that is internalized and then carried with us.
3: So what, what about what about adults? What about partners? Do partners talk to one another enough appropriately, do you think?
2: No, I don't. <laughs> um, I think there's a certain irony in the fact that often the hardest person to talk to about sex is the person that we're having it with. Mm. Because we have this clash of we should all know what we're doing. Our partners should know what they're doing. We should all be experts on each other and experts on ourselves and never have to talk about it And never discuss it and everything should just be fine. And Mm. we don't do it in any other aspect of our lives. We never think we'll have everything worked out. But when it comes to sex, it's just an assumption that we should never have to think about it or explain or discuss, you know, particularly not kind of talk about what has changed or what we might want to change or what is working or isn't working. So then when we do, particularly with our partners there's an assumption that's wrong or there's something Mm. wrong I think we are equipped to it maybe certain times you know after a big change let's say childbirth or cancer diagnosis or cancer treatment but I think apart from those bigger points and I don't think that even those conversations I think are still really tricky we just don't have we don't know how to have them the rest of the time
3: there's a bit of an assumption that if you're not talking about it it's okay for a lot of people isn't there and so then there's avoidance because if you need to talk about it it means there's something wrong and so it goes on what's fascinating and i think what most sex therapists are very very aware of is that people stop having (laughs) start actually avoid sex to avoid difficult conversations or awkwardness so it just it just sort of
2: peters away Mm. which is so hard really and avoidance is our most natural strategy for dealing with something that Mm. makes us stressed or anxious we just go okay i'll just ignore it Mm. Um, and then if that continues that's when we can get tripped up
0: i think as well you know the other extreme is some people might worry that if they speak about sex too much, you know, and every time you finish, you roll over and you say, just fill out this survey, please. You know, that sort of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. how was this? Do all that. You know, sex might lose one of those things that, again, people think that they need to have, which is this spontaneity and that immediacy. And that thing that you were saying about Kate, where you just should know, like in the film's, which we talk about a lot, uh, how it affects us. But, you know, a couple, they meet, they go on a date, and then you cut to them up against a wall, they orgasm at the same time. It's this amazing, like, night, and no one's said a word about it that whole time.
2: And I had a really interesting conversation with um, Justin Hancock, who has just written the book, Can We Talk About Consent? And we were talking about it, and he was explaining kind of his theories and how those conversations go. And I said, so do you think the flip side of this is that people will say, well, you know, can't we just have sex and enjoy it without thinking about everything? Like, can't we just not have to talk about everything or not dissect everything and just do sex? And I think that I agree with you there. I think that there is this sense of, are we making something which is meant to be fun and carefree more work or boring or a bit admin (laughs) laden or why do we have to why do we always have to talk about it I think there can be that sense and I think that's the confidence bit isn't it that we I suppose as therapists at least I feel like one of my the biggest parts of my job is trying to help people to build sexual self-confidence and then we know how to integrate all of that stuff into our sex lives and feel happy with it
0: so just focusing on your therapy for a minute are there any trends that you're seeing in the people that come to you any problems that are sort of most common
2: anxiety Mm. i believe is present with every single person that i work with Mm. in some way shape or form and performance anxiety particularly in Men. And when I say young, I mean, I'm working with young people. Um, everyone is over 18. I don't do work with kind of young adults. So they're all the majority of my client group is under the age of 45. A lot of people in their 20s and 30s. I think anxiety, expectation and what ties into that are things like thought patterns or negative automatic thoughts worries and then what we also see is that that can interrupt sexual performance and it can interrupt sexual functioning and it can interrupt sexual arousal and it can interrupt desire so for me yeah i think anxiety is is the big the big thing
0: and do you feel like that's growing or whether it's just it's the big thing or what do you think it is trending towards getting worse
2: i don't know if i think it's trending i one thing i think that i'm really happy about is the fact that it means that people are trying to work on it and trying to improve it and people are coming for psychosexual therapy seeking Mm -hmm. out psychosexual therapy and you know at the moment almost every psychosexual therapist i know is fully booked with waiting lists you know, there, there isn't enough help for people, but people are recognizing that getting help is possible. I, I think our environments, our social context, our way of working, technology, our performance, productivity focused always on way of living is quite anxiety provoking in lots of ways. Mm. And I think that it's a, a real blend of...
0: we talk about sexual well-being and and your sexual wellness and stuff I mean do you think that's intrinsically linked to I think what a lot of people think it is how much sex you're having
2: the reason that everyone gets so hooked up on how much sex you're having is because it's the only objective way we have of measuring sex so we're like okay well once a week, that feels like a good, round objective number, so let's pick that as a target. And um, a colleague of mine called Dr. Karen Gurney, who wrote the brilliant book "Mind the Gap and has done an amazing podcast, talks about how regularity of sex is a complete red herring for sexual satisfaction, because we might be having really regular sex but not really enjoying it, or mm. it might have not really be offering us what we want. and If we measure it by how often we're doing it, that doesn't really offer any other information. But on the flip side of that, what we do know is that couples who prioritise and make space for sex, and whether that is scheduled or just putting time in the diary, but the couples that continuously, I suppose, invest in that side of their sex life and do recognise that it's a priority, also report good sexual and relationship satisfaction and so the regularity bit we shouldn't use it as a measure but what we do know is that couples who prioritize that part of their sex life are reporting that doing that works.
3: And it's so interesting because so many people have that belief in spontaneity and therefore don't put time aside for their relationship, whether it's for sex or just intimacy. And they don't do that because they think it should just come naturally. And then they just don't do it because there is no time when you're really busy it's just it just doesn't happen
2: and one of the things Kate I always remember you saying so um, I don't know if we said this on the podcast but Kate was actually one of my master's tutors when I was training (laughs) on my relationship therapy masters you always used to say sex is never really spontaneous because when we go on a first date oh yeah we are getting dressed up and we're getting excited and there's anticipation and in a way that's foreplay we all might think that it's going to happen and then we Book in the next date if it doesn't happen that night. We're always building up to that in some way. Mm. And I always remember it as a point that you made, which was is it ever really spontaneous because surely when we are arranging things or when we're dating or when we're starting relationships, we're anticipating that it's going to be there. And sh- although it's not fitted or fixed into the schedule, mm. it's kind of there as an assumption. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah i'm you, always saying that i am always anti-dicks i'm
0: always yeah, you, you saying that. you certainly are but yeah <laughs> yes. exactly it, i mean it's not necessarily in the itinerary it's not like we've gone for dinner then we're going to watch this film and then we're going to bang for two hours like that's not in the, that's not <laughs> two hours? how wow. yeah. well I, I, again i don't know if you can tell i've never had sex before i don't know how long these things last for um but you know it's not in the itinerary but in the back of everyone's heads it is there, so you you're absolutely right we do we do schedule it, but it's just a lot harder when you live together so that that sort of is my my next question. We talk about how much sex you're having and stuff, but am I not right in thinking that couples who have been together for a year, a year and a half, two years, definitely by that point sex almost does drop off the amount of sex that people are having
2: I'm sure we see a pattern right definitely, and I think there's also a narrative mm. and Something Esther Perel talks about is that we can push back against that norm or against that expectation. I think she talks about it as rebelling almost against the natural assumption that sex is just going to drop off. So if we accept it and we just go, "Eh, okay, yeah, well, that's what everyone says happens. But I think that what we know about desire and desire being so responsive is that the natural context or settings are there much more at the start of relationships because we are creating context within which we can trigger responsive desire on a really regular basis. For example, dating, for example, not seeing each other every night, going and doing things together, exploring, it all being new and exciting and getting to know each other and there being anticipation. And the more familiar we become with another person or people, if we there is more than two of us in that relationship, the more we don't expect those new, exciting things, or we don't trigger desire in the same way so much because we get comfortable. Mm. But again, that's one of the things that we see has to happen in relationships in a way, because if we we're all in the relationships that we were in at the start of relationships, then we'd also get nothing else done. We wouldn't be able to go to work or concentrate or be that functional because we are throwing everything into that relationship and trying to invest in that person and trying to get them to invest in us. And it's all exciting. And, you know, we kind of cancel everything else we're doing and give everything to them and relationships move through phases and stages. And I suppose for me, that's an adjustment that we also expect to see. So that's the exchange of perhaps one facet of a relationship that we start to see for others.
3: Well, the honeymoon period only has a limited time. And the the quicker you commit to one another, move in together or start a family or whatever, then you're going to lose all the hormones associated with that early stage in the relationship. I mean, it's often when people wake up from the hormones, they're a bit disappointed, if we're honest, as, as well as having not the context anymore for you know, mad, passionate sex.
0: It's that contrast, I guess, isn't it? It's that shift because something that was once there now isn't, and you think that there's something wrong now.
2: That that's a big problem, I think, that I have with a lot of the narratives is something changes and we're like, oh my god, why did it change? And I spoke to Andrew G. Marshall, who has written like twenty books on relationships and some amazing titles like I love you, but I'm not in love with you, and um, things like that. But mm. And I asked him that question. I said, why do you think sex changes? And he said, why wouldn't it? Everything else changes. We change. You change. Your partner changes. You move jobs. You move house. You have kids, or you don't, or you get a pet, or you start exercising. You might have really liked pizzas your whole life and then go off Italian food. He was like, nothing else stays the same but we expect sex too, mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, you're just talking. So much sense. Absolutely.
0: And am I right in thinking that you sometimes encourage that change? Because I, I think I saw somewhere, but this might be wrong, it might not have been you, um, <laughs> where you, you suggested sometimes to your clients and things to, to change one aspect of sex every time they have it. Is that right?
2: Um, yeah, I think it was me that said that. Um, I'm sure other people say it. I'm not claiming I invented the idea. Mm-hmm. But I talk about the idea of them spicing it up inverted commas I think can be quite intimidating for people and they can think oh my god what am I gonna have to do Mm -hmm. like I'm gonna have to also like not be myself or spend loads of money or try loads of things or really push myself to an uncomfortable place so what I talk about is every time you have sex changing one thing and that one thing can be having the lights on versus having the lights off starting with your clothes on versus clothes off putting your bedding on the floor instead of on the bed, taking penetrative sex off the menu for that night and just focusing on non-penetrative types of sex, having a shower together before, whatever it is. And but But the point I was trying to make is that those changes can be really small. So, for example, changing the lighting or keeping an item of clothing on so you have a different feel against your skin. They don't have to be intimidating massive changes
0: I mean the results for that is it positive because I imagine after a while they might be racking their brains just to be like oh what can we do <laughs> what can we do now we've the light switch has been all over the place the the beddings at this point we've taped it to the ceiling um <laughs> you know but but it, it, does it have the desired effect do you think people are you know it's quite fun and creative and collaborative
2: I think but I mean it's not exhaustive I'm not saying mm. um you know once you've had sex with the lights on you can't <laughs> <yeah. perhaps>. <laughs> The lights on again. Um, But I think it's just about encouraging the idea of mixing up routine or changing things. Um, And for me, I think it's just an accessible. Way of being able to do that, but yeah, I would say um, you know, do things safely. Don't try and um, turn the bed upside down and do it underneath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: what happens. <laughs> I can't be responsible for any injuries that people um incur. <laughs> but there's also people also give things up, don't they?
3: Or or they slip away. Or if one partner thinks the other one didn't like something, once they stop doing it, and there's so much to think about going back to. What 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 have you stopped doing that you miss is. Oh, you know, that's often really useful as well. Well,
2: also things, you know, things change in terms of health. So, yeah. um, for example, someone has uh, recurrent urinary tract infections mm. and they've had a lot of inflammation, a lot of pain, that that might change the way they want to have sex or they've had to have quite a few invasive medical investigations. Mm. And so everything is just feeling a bit uncomfortable or there's a bit of anxiety. There might be anxiety about leaking because they've been really struggling with peeing I mean that's a pretty niche example but something that is not Mm. uncommon Mm. it might be that something like having a pillow under their hips actually helps things to feel more comfortable or someone's had cancer treatment and a certain bit of their body is sore and so we have to kind of adjust our environment in order to accommodate that or you know even something like a broken leg can get Mm. in the way of sex so I think that What it enables us to do is be like, okay, just how do we manipulate our environment to make it work for us better?
0: And and eventually you'll try things and be like, oh, that was a quirk that we did this time. And actually we might carry it on in future whenever we have a bed that we can turn upside down um <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's nearby we, we've talked a lot about and something you mentioned earlier which I'm, I'm interested to ask about we've obviously talked about the sexual wellness of like couples and stuff but what about of the individual or someone who is single and particularly maybe who's say after a year of lockdown and they've stuck to the rules and they haven't you know where it's the law you're not allowed to fiddle with people so they they have stayed single and and, and stuff like that, that time what yeah, is sexual wellness... I mean, they they might be fretting, you know, about their sexual well-being.
2: Yeah, and, you know, friends of mine and people that I know that have been single in the pandemic, they were like, oh, it's so hard. You know, this is mm. really difficult. Um, I'm a big advocate for sex toys, <laughs> mm-hmm. is one thing. But I think sexual wellness is not something which is exclusive for couples and people in relationships. And I think it's a really important point to make, and I'm really pleased you've asked it, because... I think a lot of these conversations are so focused on people in relationships and we know that there's quite a big percentage of people that aren't in relationships and actually for the second series of the podcast I've done an episode with someone completely focused on solo pleasure masturbation self pleasure because it was something that I felt we needed to discuss and I think the same rules apply so knowledge, education, understanding your body. And I think that's a big thing that we don't see. So for example, we know that the Eva Peel did research that showed that 40% of women couldn't correctly label a diagram of the vulva and the vagina in the female anatomy. Gosh. And we have a big problem. You know, it's then not a surprise that we're seeing people are like, oh, I don't really understand my body. And that's 40% of women talking about women's bodies, not men talking about women's bodies, but women actually struggling themselves with their own bodies. And things like that are really important in terms of self-sexual well-being, body education, and whether that is just exploring our bodies head to toe and working out what feels good for us, what type of touch, what type of stimulation, finding out what we enjoy, thinking about sex in a kind of more positive or neutral light, exploring reading podcasts, TED Talks, which I talk about a lot just because I think they're a really good source of information or just talking to our friends or discovering actually what works for us in terms of self-pleasure, masturbation, enjoyment because we can have a really, really, really good sexual well-being without a partner. The the two things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm.
0: One last question that we like to ask people is... What we've talked about today, what advice would you give to people going forward? You know, if there's one thing they could take away from today or a few things from what we've talked about, what would you you say?
2: Sex education happens across the lifetime. You can sex educate yourself and that it doesn't have to be formalised. And I think that it's never too late. If you want to go and learn something more or explore or be curious, go and do it. Think about where you're getting the information from. But there are so many great sex educators and therapists and experts and researchers sharing such amazing, useful information. And I think that often we think, I didn't have a great sex education, so that's me done. And empowering people to realize that they can change that or can at least have an influence on it is really important for me.
0: And communication is lubrication. I want to say that one as well, just because you've said it before. And I think it's just the best soundbite. And it's so true. And hopefully if if people go away and they do exactly as you say, and they educate themselves and they keep doing that, if everyone does that, then it will make those conversations a lot more easy between them. Kate, Moyle, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: It's the Mailbag, send Kate queries, two podcast at Hatch.com Is the Mailbag, send Kate your queries, podcast at hats. The the Hello there, I have a query for Kate. I would like to know when the Real Sex Education Mailbag starts. The Real Sex Education Mailbag starts right now. Thank you. Thank you so much again to Kate for joining us. You can hear more of her in her podcast, The Sexual Wellness Sessions, or follow her on Instagram at Kate Moyle Therapy. Wicked, right, Mum? Now it's time for some of your advice Ooh. to our listeners who sent in their questions, emailing you, podcast at hatcher.com, or DMing you on our Instagram account at realsexedpod. To start, we have this question from Jack, who asks this. I've been dating on and off for the last couple of years and in every relationship I've had I have the same problem. I get turned off when we talk about their sexual preferences because all I can think about is that they've done it before with someone else. When we're actually doing it, it makes it worse. Do you have any tips on getting over this?
3: That's really hard, isn't it? It's difficult when jealousy is a big deal. Mm. But it's normal. And it kind of suggests that this is an important relationship to you. And If you don't like talking about sexual preferences, don't talk about them. Mm. You can show one another what you like, or you could say, I'd like to try this rather than, oh, I really like this, do that, Mm. if it it makes it easier. So you can maybe have a conversation about how you discuss preferences or show rather than tell, if you like. Mm. But, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean as well that they've done these things with other people. I mean, it might be self-discovery. The other thing is... This is true with all things. If you're feeling jealous, if you're having intrusive thoughts, if it's if there's something difficult for you, it's helpful to say to your partner, oh, I've got intruders again or oh I just need a hug or something which suggests you know you, you just need a bit of reassurance that's okay and you can do that mm. and that should be much better than saying oh, I'm really jealous I can't talk to you now I can't even look at you or something like that which is just not not very pleasant is it
0: yeah and those thoughts will just eat you up inside I think it was really true what you said like yeah either it's some self-discovery from someone also some people might think something's hot but they've never actually done it so that might be them saying mm. it as well Maybe if you say to them, like, you know, I, I don't like talking about it. Well, then if you, you know, obviously consensually and maybe slowly show your partner, that means that then the first time you're doing it, well, that's the first time you're doing it. And then what they like mm. is then framed within you both doing it together yeah. rather than it yeah. being like, oh, I did this with my ex and it was really hot. I'd love to do it with you. It'd Be like, oh, now no, I could see something going wrong.
3: I mean, the fact that people have had other partners doesn't detract from your relationship. I mean, it's very unlikely you're going to meet somebody who's never, ever had another partner of some description, even if it was only when you're five years old holding a little boy's hand on the way home. You know, it's mm. it's very unlikely that it's never going to have happened. So some of this is about managing your own feelings and work, trying to work out why you need to have all of somebody, why that you need to sort mm. of almost own them and and devour them. That's not very exciting. That's not in the end going to turn out to be very sexy it's your differences and the experiences you've had that make you the people that you are and make you interesting and if you're both the same there's not going to be much sex happening anyway because it's just too dull
0: Mm. also good to remember if you guys are talking about your sexual preferences wow you guys are you guys you know you guys are there talking about your sexual preferences in anticipation of having sex with each other this person they're talking about the sex press and stuff because they want to do that stuff with you. They're here in this moment with you. They're not sitting there going, oh, I wish I was with my ex. Anyway, see so like, like you know, mm. That's another thing to remember. There, there may have been exes, yes, but it's all led up to this point where now they're choosing you and they're here in this mm. moment with you and they want to share this stuff with you. So that's good to remember as well. Absolutely. Brilliant. The next question we have is from Andrew. And Andrew says... My son has just gotten together with his first boyfriend. Mm. I gave him the talk a few years ago, but only focused on straight sex. Now I want to give him the talk again. What should I say? This is so sweet, by the way. Mm but what 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 should he say?
3: Yeah, well, I mean there's probably nothing that he needs to say i mean <laughs> the, the talk could probably go the other way round if it yeah. was a few years since since the first one. Mm. but I mean, one thing I would definitely say is that you shouldn't be having the talk. You should have an open dialogue throughout your children's life and mm. I mean, not be intrusive and not be yucky, but make it clear that they're able to talk about sex if they need to. So what you might be wanting to do is being sure that you're signposting things they might need. So we can put some URLs in the show notes to suggest places that you might want to look for information about gay sex. But I'm guessing that this lad is able to look those up for himself. Mm. I mean, it, it, it is awkward when you start a new relationship. It's awkward regardless of whether it's gay, straight or whatever, to work out people's preferences, to work out what's okay. It's a little bit more complicated when it's gay sex because you don't, yet know what you like i guess Mm. and so there's going to be a lot more experimentation and that sort of thing so it's it's up to this person to find out a lot of that stuff Mm. for himself and actually if you're not gay dad you're probably not in a position to help with that
0: (laughs) that's the thing when i read this question i was like right for me the talk won't be too much different it will be be safe Wear a Mm. condom, first and foremost, because yes, pregnancy is not on the table, but STDs still are, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And be open and communicative with your partner, but also, you know, if things aren't going great with your partner, talk to your dad, talk to other people, that also. Hopefully, there's not many talks happening where, you know, dad sits down with his son and goes, right, son, here's how you perform cullilingus, or here's how you do that, like, here's the internet, because I I don't know how appropriate that is. Like, you don't want to...
3: It's really not. I yeah, mean, it's exactly. The same, you, yeah. you know, it, it's the same as any sex. You need to discover for yourself what you yeah. like and don't like. You don't need. I mean, for goodness' sake, you don't. Your parents don't. need
0: to talk. Exactly. Just thought of it. I know it's, it's um, terrible. So, but yeah. that's what I mean. So, I think we will put these these URLs in the in the in the notes because I think you know he sounds like he's old enough to do it himself but do you know what yeah. I mean like this way you can just be like okay well I've done what I need to do because otherwise you know he might learn it from porn which isn't always the best place things like that so yeah. here's some URLs it's all up to him there you go I've I done mean, my I bit just I just think it's
3: too late but I mean I, but I think it would <laughs> yeah. be as you say rather sweet to sit down and say is there anything I can help you with is there's ever anything that you need to know Brilliant. I'm always here for you and, and what more is there than that
0: I think this is perhaps my favorite question i just love the idea of andrew just being like oh i need to give him the talk again so sweet you're a great dad oh that's all we have time for thank you so much again to kate well for taking the time to speak to us today about our sexual wellness thank you to kate campbell for your expertise. thanks mum
3: oh thanks Diggs.
0: and thank you most of all for listening see you next time bye bye You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Diggory Waite and the executive producer is Claire Broughton. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. This show is inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education.